0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Kennel, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Raina Dennison, author of Anime, A Critical Introduction. The book responds to anime's global success by examining how academics, journalists, and fans understand anime, and what we understand that term to mean, in Japan, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Dennison shows that our understanding of anime is bound up in the idea of genre. Anime is a genre, or even meta-genre, but also genres like shoujo, shonen, horror, and science fiction, all of which I'll be asking about shortly. <laughs> um, ultimately, a critical introduction is a tour de force that somehow threads together analyses of specific anime, the reception of those anime, and anime production and distribution technologies in three nations on three continents. Dr. Ana Dennison, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Amanda. That's such a wonderfully generous introduction, and it's my absolute pleasure to be here with you today.
2: Oh no, it's entirely warranted by this book, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Of course, hi. Yes, everyone, it's great to be here. Um, So I am currently a professor of film and digital arts here at the University of Bristol in the UK, where I'm head of department and head of subject for film and television. I've been a specialist in anime for professionally about 15 years, but I've been in love with anime since I was a child. Um, I'm one of the generation, and this will age me horribly, but I'm one of the generation who watched anime in America when I was growing up, On television and had no idea it was from Japan. Um, And then for me, anime reemerged in kind of in the 1990s when I was a teenager and friends would sidle up to you in the playground and say things like, hey, I found this really great DVD. It's called Akira. Do you want to watch it? And then, you know, mind blown thereafter, um, I rediscovered Japanese animation and discovered how long it had been traveling around the world and changing everyone's appreciation of what animation could do and what animation could be. So for me, that was where, I guess, my, my love affair with anime restarted as a teenager. And then um, it was, it was again, a revelation, having finished a, a degree in Japanese, that, that we were allowed as academics to study film and television. And that within that, we were allowed to study anime. And, and so my whole career has been spent, I feel, so far anyway, exploring this terrain um, and finding all the, the amazing stories that anime has brought to us, the amazing styles of animation it has brought to us, um, and then trying to bring those and proselytize for those with people around the world who maybe are just getting into anime, just discovering it, but also those who are trying to take popular culture seriously and trying to find ways to speak about popular culture in an academic, scholarly way, Because that itself has been a growing field just for the last 25, 30 years. And it's been great to to see it flourishing and to see so many people now um, coming into the field and doing amazing studies of anime. I meet brilliant PhD students all the time now and, and recent graduates from PhD programs who've spent their time doing research into aspects of Japanese animation and Japanese media culture that two decades ago no one would have thought to even look at but now are are proving to be these amazing new resources for all of us as scholars.
2: Sounds like an incredibly vibrant and growing field. I'm so glad you can come talk to us about it. Um, So one of the things that struck me even before I ever read this book is that it's part of the Bloomsbury Film Genres series. Um, And I just want to ask, you: what led you to analyze anime from the perspective of genre?
1: Uh, So this all started um, in a conversation I had with Mark Yankovic, who was the series editor at the time. And we had a we had a complete disagreement about whether or not anime was a genre. And at the end of a meal we'd had together, he just turned to me and went, you should write a book about this. Because, you you know, you have so much to say about it, you should write a book about it. And and it, that idea really stuck with me, because anime is not a genre. But of course, anime is a genre. And it completely depends on your perspective, on how you grew up watching it, and, and whether you consider something like shonen to be a sub-genre or a genre in its own right, or a kind of anime, another different kind of category, a transmedia category. I mean, there's so many ways to look at anime, and that's the joy of it in in many respects. But what it started for me was me thinking about it structurally, about how what anime is in Japan is different to what anime is in America, and even how there are differences between America and the UK. Um, Certainly there's differences that we see all the time now between the popular genres in different places so within anime there are flows ebbs and flows of different kinds of production that do well at home and and different ones that do well abroad and it's very it's it's very fun but also very difficult to predict what's going to be popular in any given place and i suppose these days we need to add the confusion that streaming platforms are adding into the mix you know is Castlevania anime? Uh, these are questions that I think will vex future academics, possibly. I'm, I, I don't want to touch that one because that comes back to questions of, does it? Does being anime mean you have to make it in Japan? Does the product have to come from Japan? Or is anime a style now that people can adopt around the world? It's certainly become very influential in animation from places like South Korea where they're doing a lot of the in-betweening for the Japanese anime industry. But we're seeing that bleed into the aesthetics of things like the Voltron remake that DreamWorks did for for streaming um, Netflix. So there's this wonderful... I I mean, you started me talking about this, and I'm not going to be able to stop again because I love this topic. But um, it, it starts these really interesting patterns of production and patterns of aesthetic exchange and, and influence that I find completely compelling um, as ways of tracing the importance of anime as it moves around the world and through time. Absolutely, yes. Um, the, I suppose the, the, the rather shorter answer would be I, I started thinking about it structurally and when I did, I discovered that anime wasn't a genre but that anime behaves generically in very overt, big ways. So there's some really interesting crossover between thinking about anime as a genre and thinking about anime's genres and and anime's generic um, uh, ways of encapsulating production um, aesthetics and and production trends.
2: And I think that gets into uh, an idea you introduce which is that anime, or the idea of considering anime as a meta-genre. Um, so what does that mean, and how does looking at anime as a meta-genre change our understanding
1: of it? So again, it depends on the perspective you want to take on it. I, I suppose meta <laughs> We could get very philosophical about what meta-genres might mean, um, but to, to keep it relatively simple, I suppose the way to think about it is within Japan, anime is, is so much more than a genre. It is a whole industry, and that industry contains multitudes. So in Japan, anime is is almost too big to be thought about as a genre, and yet in that classic genre way, we know anime when we see it. And, and if it comes out of the Japanese industry and it's animated and it's two-dimensional, you're probably thinking it's anime. But in Japan, anime is, is both about the production of animation but it's also more than that and that's where the meta side of it comes in because anime as a a product of largely television animation has become the linchpin that holds together massive franchises that often start in manga but can end up in live action film in video games in um, musicals like you know theatrical musicals and all kinds of wonderful things so I find anime is really interesting to think about in that meta generic way because it both encapsulates genres but it's more than that. And, and in being more than a medium, it becomes, I think, meta, it becomes more than and, and extends far beyond the reaches of a, a regular genre.
2: Mm-hmm. And- you also sort of, um, in your your answer there, you, you get at another thing that the book does, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, you pointed out that when we see something, uh, we can recognize it as anime. But you also point out that the, the word anime has a different meaning in Japan, um, where it just means animation. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Japan. Um, now. The, because of that, that shifting in ter- uh, the meaning of terms, I guess we should say, um, your book tackles anime and its um, reception in Japan, but also in the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, and you know, it was really eye-opening for me because you know, I-, I know that anime means animation in Japanese, but some of the other terms that you really, um, you sort of defined for different or in different places Um, I had not realized quite what the distinctions were until I read your book. And they really have a a, a really important shift in how we understand what's going on. Um, So to get into that a little bit more, though, I think, could you tell us why you chose the United States and the United Kingdom as your sort of uh, secondary and tertiary sites of uh, research, as it were?
1: I mean, obviously, so these days... um... If we were going to start this study again, probably the most interesting places to look at would be places like South Korea and China, where anime's importance is has rapidly grown over the last fifteen years, um, since the relaxation about imports and since, um, particularly South Korea has been doing so much outsourcing work for Japanese animators. So it's it's really building and changing the, the South Korean anime industry, animation industry. Sorry, um, I'll stop doing that, I promise. Uh, but there's, there's a wonderful connection there, I think, in terms of industrial shifts and changes that we probably want to look at that would make different points. But for me, when I started this book, I was interested in the, the kind of vibrancy of the early exchanges between the Japanese animation industry and other animation industries. And I was also interested in how how difficult it has been for anime to find markets outside of Japan as well. So on the one hand, you know, as soon as Astro Boy by Tezuka comes out in the 1960s, it's already in America just a year later. So when anime on television is born, it's essentially born as a transnational medium and immediately is being translated and, and sent abroad and distributed in the States. Um, so I thought it made sense because of that early connection to look at that connection with America. Um, it's also a connection that's been um, theorized quite a lot lately. Um, and, and subsequent to this book coming out, there's been qu- brilliant work being done about early anime fandom in the States and, and some great work looking at the kind of networks and how it's spread um, to America, um, which is certainly very welcome. But at the time I wrote this, there wasn't, a lot of that. So I was going back into fan magazines and early, um, early publications where fans were talking about anime and trying to piece together, for myself as much as anything else, why those connections emerged. What was it about Japanese anime that American animation fans were suddenly discovering? What was inspiring them in anime? Um, so I was really interested in those early connections and. And for me, it made sense after that to think about the development and and to use America as a case study for where where anime takes hold and how it then changes and shifts over time in reputation, but also in in meanings. And I found the case studies so fascinating because, you know, as you said before, the and what anime means to people in Japan very much was different to what anime meant to people as home video took off in the 1980s and 90s in America, when only very specific anime texts were coming across, and that really shaped um, perceptions of what anime was for a very long time. And still today, um, just just recently, I was seeing um, you know people talking about Japanese cinema um at an event in london where they were talking about anime's um, slightly risqué reputation when it came across in the 1990s and people were all nodding in the audience and and i find that that lingering impression of anime is something that is extreme um it is very interesting when we when we look at those overseas markets in the states because of course most fans will know anime is everything it's for little kids it is pornographic it is they. They. It, it it has all the genres and and is made for all of the audiences it's not something that is niche in the way that it was initially presented to fans and fans actually have been hugely important internationally doing the work to explain what anime is to one another and to explore its generic landscapes and to um promote those different genres to each other and to new audiences and I you know I think fans particularly American and European fans have done huge amounts of work for industry um, globally to help people understand what anime is I think fans are a huge part of that really Mm. that was
2: one of the things that um sort of struck me about the fan communities in the U.S. and the U.K. um In America there was a bit of an emphasis on sort of explaining that anime is not pornography or not just pornography Um, but then in the UK when I first started to learn about the fan communities there was so much history being written within the community about what they were doing that I had not seen anywhere else um, which was truly fascinating Um,
1: yeah if anybody if anybody fancies it um... Leah Holmes, so L-E-A-H, um, Holmes is in Sherlock, um, has done an amazing study of UK fandom, and you can see her timeline for UK fandom of anime online. It's She's got a website where she's done that timeline, and it's brilliant. Um, she's spent a lot of time talking to fans and mapping their memories of when anime first came over and who did that work. And I'm happy to say um, Helen McCarthy, who's absolutely wonderful, mm was right at ground zero. She's she's one of the big anime authors, but she's also she was there early early in the life of anime's importation to the UK, doing the work to proselytize for it, running conventions, writing editing fanzines, and she she was a one-woman marketing campaign for anime in the UK, I think. And and I think we can thank her for a lot of what we get over here even now. She's been a huge linchpin in the history of anime's um, kind of importation here to the UK because she did a huge amount of work to map what was coming into Europe, what was coming into the States, to put fans in touch with with one another and get them exchanging tapes back in the days when there was no, or very little at least, legitimate distribution.
2: Those were good days. (laughs) I
1: don't know. I I, I prefer now when I can just go... I can go to Crunchyroll or Netflix and, mm-hmm. and very easily watch the things my students are talking about that they like. Um, and I, I think my, my students now are, are one of my favorite barometers for what's, what's big in anime as it comes across from Japan to the rest of the world. Um, we have lots of international students here at Bristol and they're amazing. They're really engaged with anime and it's been great talking with them recently about about what they're watching and what they love.
2: It is so helpful now that I am no longer a teenager myself uh, to have that kind of help. My Recently my own nephew uh, informed me that My Hero Academia is huge amongst oh, yeah. the uh, middle school set.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean... I keep up with it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I had a wonderful experience just this summer. I did um, a lecture for school children on manga, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And it was brilliant to do because I got to think about how manga are educational, how there are loads of manga out there that are teaching us, and, and anime, of course, because many of them are turned into anime. They're actually teaching us about the world around us, about our own bodies, about science, you know, science not just science fiction so you know recently things like dr stone and cells at work have been brilliant almost textbooks that you can read about how the body functions or about you know the components that go into creating a cell phone you know it's it's really interesting to see how what we see of anime has changed so dramatically since those early days of akira and ghost in the shell coming over and being the kind of high-profile, touch, generic touchstones of science fiction. Um, now there's th- that, that genre has just so much more in it, and I think that's just wonderful to see. It has really diversified, because as you say, uh, programs
2: like Cells at Work are straight-up science oh, yeah. in, in a certain level. But really, um, one genre in particular has always been associated with uh, anime, uh, especially outside of Japan, and that is science fiction, mm-hmm. with akira and ghost in the shell and so much how how, why is science fiction such a big part of anime and its its movement across the world
1: so i suppose i suppose at the beginning of the conversation you have things like astro boy um and there's logical reasons why very much like in the development of cg animation which starts out with bugs and robots and and things that are easy to animate when you're using a computer. I think in some ways we see a similar sort of thing happening in early anime where it's picking up on popular trends in manga. So Astro Boy is one of Tezuka's most popular manga, if not the most popular one he ever did. And it's building on existing brands, therefore, to, to build anime as something popular. It's, it's a, a way of managing the risk. If you animate something that people already know and love, it makes it a lot less risky. So there's, a, there's an aspect to the early popularity of sci-fi and anime kind of then breeding more interest in sci-fi and anime. Um, and it's worth noting that boys' anime develops faster than girls' anime. So from the 1960s with um, your, your kind of giant robots and small robot, popular science fiction shows, very utopian a lot of the time, but not quite as utopian as something like Star Trek. Um, we get from that into the more, much more complex, um, almost soap opera narratives of big, long-running shows, um, things like Gundam, of course, um, but also big early hits. And this is really interesting to me because the first anime that really become massive hits are sci-fi. Um, and it's not just Tezuka's Astro Boy, it's also things like Space Battleship Yamato, which it does okay on TV, but then they repackage a couple of episodes into a movie and they discover fans are willing to wait outside for hours and hours to come and see this movie. And it's, it's the start of that kind of growth of the otaku-style fandom that becomes so important. And that in, then informs what gets made later. So from the success of something like Space Battleship Yamato, you get people like Hideaki Ano, who creates Neon Genesis Evangelion becoming interested in, in anime because they've seen those early success stories and you know and they start to make their own anime. Um, some of them, like Anno, start out as fans, making almost kind of fan-made animation and then segue into industry. But the industry itself is already very savvy by the 1970s about what sells what sells toys in particular. Um, and so your giant robot anime sell toys and, and that's another reason that they they dominate the market. And as those those kinds of sci-fi shows dominate the market, they start to slowly filter through into other markets. So um, something like uh, Gatchaman, the, the, which is you know really about a team of science, you know, you know, it's a science fiction team of that's very influenced by, or very influenced by, kind of superheroes from America, but also influenced by the growing interest in tokusatsu um, or a special effects genre live action production. You know, in that mm-hmm. that sort of um, Power Rangers style of science fiction in live action television, they all start to emerge in the seventies as well. So you get the kind of the science team. Um, sort of group of anime um, heroes that gets conjoined to sci-fi narratives and of space travel and space aliens, and and it gives it gives the the main human characters or science that, who might be super heroic in one way or another, it, or robots. It gives the positive characters outsiders to fight that are without connection to. You know wartime influences or or the legacies of the Second World War, and so I think that's part of the reason in Japan at least why sci-fi is so important. It gives a fantasy landscape in which Japan can be free to create heroes who can fight villains from outside um, without harking back to history too much. So, and then of course from there you get the the development of all kinds of science fiction subgenres, and some of those start like um, with Akira and and Ghost in the Shell that start to to break through into the Western market a bit more, and we see it even now with you know huge hits like My Hero Academia that we mentioned a minute ago. Um, but there's there's loads of these shows now that I think are are playing with notions of genre in very reflexive ways that you know play with the superhero genre, that play with science fiction, that play with educational narratives. You know, there's there's all kinds of things going on that I think are are really very, very um knowing in terms of what the audiences know going in and what the creators expect audiences to take away from it. Um not least of course moving away from sci-fi for a moment, the number of the growing number of Anime and manga that are now about the creation of anime and manga. So, from Bakuman to, um, I suppose, that, you know, uh, uh, by, biographical works by manga artists to, you know, um, Shirobako and, and things like that that are about the creation of anime. So, mm-hmm. if you want to know how anime is made, you can now go watch an anime about how anime is made. <laughs> <laughs> Is starting to get rather circular. You I mean, talk about a meta genre, right? <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: But we we see some of that um, reflexiveness you're describing even in um, genres like uh, cyberpunk and steampunk. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the book, steampunk. You know why is steampunk named steampunk? It, it's somewhat because of the influence of the pre-existing cyberpunk genre. The, the two. Uh, came to prominence at rather different points in uh, time, but also in at different points in anime's international growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did that sort of affect their reception abroad?
1: It's a really good question. I'm gonna struggle to answer it, I think, because I would need to have all the materials in front of me to do it justice, but I'll do my best. Um, so there there are always shifts in genres and genre shifts can happen within particular countries at completely different times. Um, So obviously William Gibson's Neuromancer is is a globally translated book and it makes cyberpunk something people know about in Japan as much as they know about it in the US. Um, But it's, I mean, it's a starting point for a a kind of futuristic fantasy that Japan is part of, in which Japan is a prominent figure. Um, And so it's, it's interesting to see something like Akira getting made sense of outside of Japan in relation to cyberpunk, when in Japan, of course, they're very aware of its connections, potential connections to those wider genres and and to to things like Neuromancer. Um, But what I find interesting about the sci-fi of that era, particularly things like Akira and Ghost in the Shell, is that they are playing with future fantasies that are both future-looking and... Retrospective, historically, at the same time. Um, so, from just from my personal point of view, I think you know there's been a lot of discussion in academia about how Akira is a form of working through of the the disasters that happened in or the the atomic bombings that happened in Japan and at the end of the Second World War, but also the Bikini Atoll testing. Um, and and there has been a lot of discussion of it as a kind of Hibakusha cinema um, or bomb survivor cinema. But at the same time, it's also a complete fantasy about a dystopic future version of Japan in which um, the wartime legacy is very different and then the the existence of Akira has changed the nature of threat and the nature of of explosions and bombs within the Japanese psyche. So there's, there's something very, very tense in that relationship. And I think by the time we get to... St- the the notion of steampunk and and people making sense of 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 anime using you know basically the same directors doing different versions of these stories or doing new versions of these stories. What we get with something like steampunk is a much more distant historical point of view coming into play. I mean, for me, what's fascinating about both of them is the the attention to detail in this in the world building. Um. And I think the world building in both uh, Steam Boy, which I talk about quite a bit, and Akira, which I talk about quite a bit in the book, is the, the attention to contemporary Japan in the first movie, in, in Akira, but the attention to Victorian London in the second. So that, that says everything about the, the kind of touchstones, the touch points for those two movies, and the way they look backward and forward and completely different ways and relate to japan's present point of view in different ways um
0: i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals. slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, something like the connect the, the, the distinctions between Ghost in the Shell and Skycrawlers are much more difficult to to unpack because there's a lot more philosophy at work in both of them. And the the constant references to European philosophers is something I find very interesting in both of those movies. There's a lot of a lot of intertextuality brought into them by the filmmakers that's about trying to represent philosophical principles in sci-fi so i find those those ideas very interesting as well what is the self what is selfhood how do how do we relate to the world what do we believe ourselves to be and what connections do we have to one another i mean those are very fundamental questions much bigger ones in some ways than the questions that are being asked in films like akira and and um, Steam Boy. But I think at the same time, the the filmmakers are engaging with sci-fi in different ways there that that makes their films equally rich, just with different agenda attached to them.
2: Mm-hmm. It is really fascinating to see
1: because
2: cyberpunk and steampunk really didn't, um, they weren't really all that far separated in time. Mm-hmm. You see cyberpunk in the late 1980s and yeah. into the 1990s. You see steampunk in the 1990s into the 2000s. Um, and yet, they have this this fascinating, uh, as you said, a uh, sort of uh, variance in time between the far future and at least a few decades, if not um, a century or so, in the past mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, now, I have to say, oh, I want to talk about one other genre, and I, it's it's the one I was a little leery going into the that final chapter on horror. <laughs> um, because i'm not the the best with the heart the scary films i will say um yet i found that i had actually seen almost every work you mentioned from um, Mm -hmm. classics like vampire hunter d and blood the last vampire uh to popular favorites like vampire night and then even um some more obscure uh but uh really well regarded titles um like ghost hunt which is one of my personal favorites i love it Yeah. And that got me interested in uh, just sort of this question of horror and how we understand horror and how it circulates, because I don't think of myself as someone who searches out scary TV shows and movies, and yet I had seen so many. Um, So how is it that, you know, even someone like me can unknowingly consume so many anime that are in fact part of the horror genre?
1: Well, that was my big question for that chapter. Is there such a thing as anime horror? I think. It's, it's one of those things where when we think of horror, we think of the point, that kind of numinous, that kind of liminal point where the realistic of live action meets the impossible. And so the special effects are often what makes a thing impossible. When you start to animate something, it becomes much more difficult to do particular kinds of horror because there's no real there's, there's no way you can go. And then the, the kind of very abstracted anime human character walks past a doorway and be in the doorway, there's a shadow because it's not connected to our world in the same way. It makes it harder to tell. I, I felt at the time going in, it surely makes it impossible to tell scary stories like this. And so I was, I was skeptical about the idea that there could be anime horror. And if there was, I wasn't sure it could be scary. It could be gross for sure. But I wasn't convinced it could be scary, and anyone who's seen Tokyo Ghoul knows exactly what I'm talking about in terms of the the distinction between the two. <laughs> it's, oh yes, again another wonderful show. Um, just the, the aesthetics in these these shows are all, I think, really disparate and really incredible. And something like Tokyo Ghoul is doing some really interesting things with the look of anime and playing with the look of it. But I digress. Um, so the the chapter in the book was looking for the traces of horror in the things that were talked about, in the way in the way these shows were talked about in Japan, but also in the way they were talked about as they moved around the world. And what was interesting is, you know, there was abs- like very little questioning of whether or not anime horror existed by the time these shows made it out of Japan. But in Japan, they weren't talked about in that way so much as a horror genre. The word horror. Wasn't really being used very much, so it was much more specific. These were, you know, Kyuketsuki or, or vampire stories, or they were yokai stories, or, or kind of oh, how do you trans- translate yokai? Ghost, monster, numinous thing that bumps in the night. Um, any of the, of the above. All the above. But you know, they were yokai stories. They were. They were. Sometimes they were ghost stories, but they were very much more talked about in very much more specific ways. And they were connected to each other generically in those specific traditions. So, you know, people would talk about the previous example that had been popular. Um, so when they were viewing a, a new vampire show, they go, oh, this is kind of the the latest one since we had Blood the Last Vampire. Or when they do Blood Sea, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, Blood the Last Vampire is where this story started. And this is, this is the sequel kind of or prequel or something connected to it. Um, and so there, there were really interesting ways that they, they were kind of in the process of building an understanding of horror that was specific to different kinds of monsters typically, um, but also specific to genre mixing of different kinds. So there was inter- there's interesting romantic horror anime. Um, things like Vampire Nights is a really good example of one of those those hybrid ones where it's as much about young girls being in love with vampires as it is about the vampires themselves. Um, those are very pretty vampires. Very pretty vampire vampires. Night. I mean, yeah, they were Japan did that quite a while before the Americans got in on the act. I think Sparkly Vampires is not new, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I think as well there's there's something interesting about the nature of horror in that. And what kinds of horror work well in anime? So, yes, I, I think there are kinds of of horror anime. The the more kind of um, splatter, it's like they are a splatterpunk anime, I suspect. Um, but there's also, you know, the 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 ones that emphasise blood and guts and gore, and that style seems to have been hugely popular in certain moments. But it's when you come across things like Ghost Hunt, which sit in a completely different part of the genre, that I, I find it fascinating. Because that is a show that's about creepiness and trying to scare you. But it's also about a group of skeptics who go around trying Scooby-Doo style to to um, explain away the mysterious. Um, and so I find those kinds of shows fascinating for the way they they present a form of, ja- of kind of anime horror, but at the same time undercut the possibility of horror mm. and, and allow you to, to have that frisson of, of fear creeping in and using sound particularly to create eerie atmospheres within the show, um, but at the same time end the show by explaining at least as much as it is possible to explain. I mean, I always love it when shows leave the door and horror movies leave the door open to future scares. You know, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm. And that,
1: um, the way that horror
2: kind of exists without existing, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. uh, in Japan, and the way that things get identified not as this overarching horror genre, but as the very specific kyuketsuki or vampire genre, does kind of speak to how. What we think of as a genre in America mm-hmm. or uh, in the United Kingdom isn't necessarily how that genre is thought of in Japan. And Completely, one, yeah. Well, one really fascinating example that I just hadn't even thought of, or I hadn't even realized was uh, different until I read your book, um, was nichijou Joke
1: mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what Nichi joke is and maybe also what we in America and in the United Kingdom might think it is, but it is not.
1: So, I mean, this is, this is another one where translation is difficult. So Nichijouke is just kind of everyday, everyday style anime. Um, Usually sits somewhere around the shoujo genre, typically, but doesn't always. Um, And it, it's usually translated as slice of life anime, but it doesn't have to be. In fact, the show Nichijoke which which has that title, isn't isn't Nichijouke in genre, which is very <laughs> frustrating to me as someone who studies genre. When they have literally given the show that name, and then they put all the fantasy stuff in it that is not at all all the fantastical elements in it that are not typical of the genre, it makes it very hard to to talk coherently about what the genre might be. Um, but I, you know, I find I found it really interesting because I thought it would be slice of life. I thought it would be um, talked about a slice of life as well. So these are shows that look at the everyday lives of young people in Japan. That's what I expected to be writing in that chapter. And instead I found the more I looked at it, the more it was industrially specific. So um, there were particular companies that were specializing in this sort of anime creation most notably Kyoto Animation, or KyoAni, um, which had, through Lucky Star and K-On, a couple of really big hits in the Nichijouke genre. Um, and that was fascinating because they had this... There was this assumption that these were shows that were you know, in that kind of Nichijouke everyday style that would be about young girls who go to a club and make a bit of music or who hang out with each other over lunch... And again, I assumed that these would be shows aimed at girls because they were so close in style and in content to the kinds of things we've seen in shoujo anime. But no, they were aimed at men and middle-aged men at that and were designed for moe or to get a kind of um, a fandom or fire burning inside of people to protect and nurture these girls. And I found that that kind of social phenomenon around anime is something you have to engage with Japan and you have to engage with with the discussions happening in fandom in Japan to find out about. And and again, this has become much better known since I wrote the book. I think more people have written about it since I wrote the book, which is great. Um, but at the time when I was looking at it, it was a, a real odyssey of discovery for me. I went in, again, as with horror, expecting one thing and came out the other side of the research, going, well, didn't see that coming. <laughs> and that's what makes doing genre studies fun, because you are... if if you're doing a genre study, typically what you do is you look to the genres that are either emerging to find out how they're forming or you're looking for um, big genres that everyone's talked about. So horror was one I included in the book simply because it's probably the best. That and the Western in film studies are probably the best ever, most discussed genre categories. Mm -hmm. And we don't get very many westerns in anime so the horror one made (laughs) sense to me to look at um i'm not saying there aren't any. i'm just saying they're not as common Mm -hmm. as the horror ones um but i do think thinking about what's been theorized and how it's been theorized and then seeing where alternative forms modes of production um, other countries interpretations of genres can give us a completely different view and picture of what's going on in cultures, but also in genres is really important. So not just assuming that when we say slice of life, we've understood a genre in Japan it is important to me. We need to actually investigate what those what those translations mean for us as academics, but also what they mean for different audiences in different parts of the world. You know, in some places in the world, saying joke," people will have an immediate picture in their head about what that is. But if you say slice of life, you'll probably have a slightly different image of than what is actually going on, and that's why I thought it was important to talk about that genre in the book. Mm. And
2: the the trick that Nietzsche Joke and its meanings turns on relates to something we've, we've kind of brought up but not gotten into too much detail about yet, which is the two terms shoujo and shonen. Yeah, um, ostensibly girls and boys, but. How do those come into play with
1: anime? I mean, this is almost as bad as trying to define anime itself when I got into the research. Um, You're not really talking about genres, again, or not genres as we typically define them outside of Japan. So instead of talking about a kind of content or a style of production or a type of story with shoujo and shonen, you're literally just talking about the market, who they're sold to. And that makes them fascinating as these shows move around the world because things like um, uh, XXX um that was released in Japan was initially aimed at more. It, it was it came out as a manga in a shonen manga, but by the time it gets to America, its fans are majority female. So mm. there's an interesting way that things flip and change between countries and between markets. So. Those there's, there's con- there's categories of shoujo and shonen are very unstable in some ways, but they're also absolutely dominant in others. And they, they describe not just an anime genre, but also a manga genre and ways of marketing to particular audience groups. So you're thinking if you're making a show and you're making it for female audiences between the ages of what, 8 and 15, you're probably talking about shoujo. But that could involve any number of different kinds of genre, any number of different styles, any number of different types of production. And and the franchises that can grow up around those shows as well are hugely diverse. You know, never mind, you know, different channels in Japan showing different kinds of anime and calling them the same thing or um, something like the Noitamina slot on um, Fuji Television, which... Is trying to do something different and is is taking genres and and creating them, recreating them, or giving um, creators license to produce different styles of genre in that slot because they're aiming them at more adult women, which is unusual. So there's there's all these really fascinating things going on with the categories of shojo and shonen. Shonen is the massive dominant one though, as I'm sure you're well aware. Um, so shonen manga outsell shoujo manga by a magnitude of the just a massive number, a huge magnitude. Um, they dominate the market. And for that reason I, I'm finding it increasingly interesting watching things like My Hero Academia, which have their action narratives that are very shonen in style, um, they're now much more interested in genre ideas than they seem to have been in in maybe previous generations. Though there are, of course, interesting women Turning up in the shonen category, interesting female characters turning up in shojo and shonen, of course, but um, particularly in shonen for a long time. But I think at the moment what we're seeing is is some really interesting ensemble casts being created that fit within the shonen category, but then have important female characters that are almost the protagonists. So Kimetsu no Yaiba is another one where you have a pair of characters, a brother and a sister, and the sister is less dominant than the the brother but she's just as important in terms of the narrative in terms of agency i think she's a very very peculiar very interesting um representation of a shojo within a shounen ca- um, category anime that defies our ability to easily easily pin down where the shows are being where the shows are going and who they're being aimed at um i suspect and the aestheticization of shonen in particular in recent years, the kind of really dramatic style of something like My Hero Academia or Kimetsu no Yaiba, are presenting us with really interesting, groundbreaking, I think, new ways of thinking about shonen in particular. Um, but for anybody who's not a massive nerd the way I am, um, shonen is your category of sports, action, sci fi, uh, manga, and anime. That has dominated the, the market for a very long time. Um, it's why the success of something like Studio Ghibli is so interesting, because they've only very rarely played up to notions of Shoujo and Shonen. Um, Castle in the Sky was a technically a Shonen main character in a Shonen adventure movie. Um, but it Studio Ghibli really became famous and successful off the back of a series of Shojo productions so i find that fascinating to think about how even some of the biggest production companies in japan have have bounced back and forth between the categories to try and find a successful formula for their their films and tv shows i'm sorry this is one where i could answer that question all day and i'm not sure (laughs) i did it justice um please feel free to ask anything else that you can think of, of about this, but I suspect that's one where we could with shoujo and shonen, we could talk about it all day.
2: <laughs> mm, and anime too. What yeah. is anime? Yeah. Those three questions <laughs> will never have a settled answer. I yeah. have a few. <laughs> um, but since you, you brought up um, studio Ghibli, um, they do, you know, if, if people know of studio Ghibli films um, in the U S and the UK, they, they generally have a, a very sort of set uh, idea of, um, mm-hmm what Studio Ghibli is and what it does. And it's very much a film uh, company as it's understood, an animated film company. But as you get into in the book, in terms of um, the products that they make, well, it's, it's just so much more diverse than that. And how they've, they've held all of that together is really fascinating as well. So would you mind telling us a little bit about that?
1: I mean, yet yeah, my starting point for this was when I read um, Helen McCarthy's book on Hayao Miyazaki, um, and she's got this wonderful chapter towards the end of the book where she talks about how much merchandising uh, Studio Ghibli does. And anyone who's been to Japan will know that that is absolutely true. <laughs> um, go to any department store, and you'll find a, a rack of Totoros somewhere in the kids section. And go to any DVD store; there'll be a special Studio Ghibli section usually. Um, this is one of Japan's biggest, most successful blockbuster companies, um, and it is treated as something special and different in Japan very much. But one of the so one of the things that I wanted to raise in the book is that the, the people we know from Studio Ghibli is only a very small number of people that that get talked about a lot. Hayao Miyazaki talked about a huge amount. There's lots of academic work on his films but it's largely been work on his films as films and the aesthetics of them or the themes that they raise. Isao Takahata, who um, was involved with Studio Ghibli from its inception, there's less written about in academic terms. Um, I'm currently finishing up editing a collection on Isao Takahata that I'm very excited about. There's some great stuff Ooh. in there. Um So some great authors as well, producing some really interesting readings of his films and and Takahata's contributions to Japanese cinema. But there are other people who worked for the studio for its entire history that we, we in English have talked very little about, and one of those was Toshio Suzuki. And Suzuki is, for me, the Ghibli mastermind. He's the reason you know about Studio Ghibli if you do know about Studio Ghibli. Because he's the one who marketed the films. He's the one who kept the filmmakers working together when they fell out or had a squabble with one another. You know, He's the one behind the scenes who, when Hayao Miyazaki retires, will sidle up to him with a, a manga that he's into or a, a book that he thinks Miyazaki should read. And lo and behold, Miyazaki will be back making a new film a couple of years later. Um, very much, Suzuki is... Is the reason we still have, I think, Studio Ghibli, and he's a massively important person in the in the anime industry, but also in the Japanese film industry. Um, so Stephen Alpert has a he worked for Studio Ghibli as their international marketing head for over a decade, and he's had a new book out last year where he's talked about his time working with the studio, and he points out that Toshio Suzuki. You know when he when he starts getting involved with Studio Ghibli he is also the editor of the main um, Tokuma Shoten funded so Tokuma Publishing funded um, anime magazine Animage. He's also though in the time that he is creating Studio Ghibli as a successful studio, Suzuki is also the right hand man for Tokuma Publishing, so he is very important to the Japanese publishing industry, very important to the Japanese film industry, and he's also building this studio, you know, just in his spare time, working with his (laughs) friends. (laughs) Um, But I, I find Suzuki really, really interesting just in terms of how he has handled the development of Studio Ghibli. So in the early days of Studio Ghibli, it's not, a production studio, as we would think of a permanent production studio today, it was basically rented its um, studio space, and they would empty out the studio at the end of a production, close it down, and everybody would go off to new jobs. So it, it was only sort of around, sort of in existence, <laughs> until Hayao Miyazaki. Um, makes Kiki's delivery service and the sales of Totoro merchandise really take off in the, the late 1980s. At which point, they're finally able to get out of debt and to start making, uh, you know, start building a permanent studio where they can have people on permanent contracts. And so that's really the early 1990s is where Studio Ghibli really hits its stride. And that's, that's a lot of that is Suzuki pushing in the background and, and handling the business side of things. Um, and I think it's, it's a fascinating thing because it's only after the studio becomes permanent that they start moving into other directions. And the first one they go into is advertising. So from (laughs) about 1991, 92 onwards, Studio Ghibli starts to make TV ads for, um, partner companies. So, um, they do, I mean, they've done at TV ads for everything from, um, home curry powders and um foodstuffs to uh banks there's a really interesting so i've just i'll talk about it in a bit i'm sure but um, i've just finished doing some research on on the studio ghibli ads and there's a fascinating series of ads they did for a a new bank that was formed called Resona, and it was supposed to be this fully fleshed out world, Hibiki Gaoka, and with, with loads of of characters who had names. There was a dog that had a name. There was there was just this massively fleshed out world. But when they came to make the ad, Miyazaki was using everybody to I finish. I think um, Hell's Moving Castle. So there were no. There was just one animator at the time who had the the capacity to work on these ads. And so this whole beautifully fleshed out plan of, of a world for Bank's ads became just a few people standing against an orange background. (laughs) So, I mean, it's fascinating when you, you start reading these stories about the company and what it was doing in advertising. It advertising for them was a place to test out new staff. It was a way to bring in more money. It was a way to test ideas. And so we see a lot of really interesting things happening in the ads, including, um, Some early work by people like, um, I, uh, sorry, I'm going to get his name wrong. Momose, um, Yoshiyuki Momose, who is doing ads in a more 3d style using computers rather than doing them the traditional, traditional Ghibli way with 2d cell animation. So there's some really interesting stuff going on in these ads that is testing the market, testing the ground for whether people will accept a 3d Ghibli world, um, and and those sorts of things are happening long before Gorō Miyazaki comes along and starts trying to do things like Hedwig and the, or awaken the Witch. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. <laughs> and Gorō Miyazaki is, of course, um, the famous director Hayao Miyazaki's son. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, he's yeah. He's an interesting story in his own right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Suzuki, um, yeah, sorry, Suzuki for me is mm-hmm. is, I think. He's just very good at selling Ghibli as a product, and he's been very good about the expansion of Ghibli beyond just films. Um, but you see Hayao Miyazaki's hand in a lot of what they do as well. So it's often ideas that are come up with between Hayao Miyazaki and Toshio Suzuki with maybe South Takahata involved. And there's a lot of a lot of discussion, a lot of collaboration, but then it will be Suzuki that, Gets the sign off from Miyazaki and then goes and makes it happen. So things like the Studio Ghibli Art Museum are fascinating because Miyazaki designs the building, but I, I suspect it was rather more Suzuki in the background taking all the meetings with the local city councils and and city councillors. Sorry, and and the the local park um, distribution agents and you know all the all the things that have to happen to make things come off. And he's he's just. He seems to have been, according to Steve um, Steve Alpert's account, just a complete dynamo, just full of energy and doing all the work behind the scenes all the time to make Studio Ghibli into a success. And for me, what's fascinating to see is as Miyazaki's aging and as Suzuki is coming into his own a bit more, Suzuki himself starts to become a character designer for some of those commercials that they make for TV, including some of the more successful ones, yeah. Oh, so fascinating! It's, it's a shift from behind the scenes to come out into the foreground, at least in Japan, anyway.
2: And that that behind the scenes work um, comes up a lot in your book. You talk about technological developments both within and outside of Japan. Um, you talk about the Tokyo International Anime Fair, which is an, uh, both an industry and event, uh, both an industry event and an event for fans. Um, but we we really have taken up a lot of your time. Um, <laughs> I wonder though, since you, you have brought up um, Ghibli um, and I happen to know there's a bit of a connection
1: there, would you mind telling us a bit about what you're working on now? I have just finished writing a manuscript and this is why you should never start me talking about Ghibli. I'm sorry uh, if I have um, completely swamped the conversation with Ghibli things, but I have just sent off a manuscript for a new book on the industrial history of Studio Ghibli. So I've looked at how Studio Ghibli has written and rewritten its own history over the course of about 35, 40 years of production on and off, at least lately. But um, how it it has created itself and then recreated itself by talking to fans, to industry, to to readers um, through autobiographies and biographies. So I've done a fair amount of translation of things in Japanese that have revealed to me a completely, a, a history of Ghibli that I didn't know when I started the project. I, I've i been writing about Ghibli for oh, 15 years at least, and I thought I knew this company, but there is so much more for you to discover if you if you read Japanese and go and look at the original sources. There's lots there. Um, so the the focus of the book is on the, the way Ghibli has talked about itself at different moments and throughout its past and, and how it's sometimes changed its story over time. Um, but also there's there's amazing stories out there in Japanese that just haven't really haven't really penetrated, haven't really been told outside of Japan. So one of the the chapters of the book is about Ghibli's adoption of digital technologies. And they do that quite early. They start playing with that in the mid-1990s just as Toy Story is coming out. So there's this assumption that Studio Ghibli is making traditional 2D cell-animated filmmaking and that that's at the heart of the Ghibli company. But really from quite early on, they're quite open to different kinds of digital animation. It's just that there are some great stories about how much Miyazaki hates it. But Miyazaki's right there on the ground when they start using when they start using digital tech, and he's really interesting in relation to it as well. Um, there's big big stories that I, I wanted to investigate, like the problematic attempts to hand over from Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata to new generations of directors, including Miyazaki's uh, Miyazaki Sangoro Miyazaki, um, but also people like Hiromasa Yonibayashi. Um, their work in video games that is only just starting to be talked about, with things like the Nino Kuni franchise that they did with Level Five, um, and things like the labor politics of Studio Ghibli, uh, about the gender politics of Studio Ghibli. Um, Hayao Miyazaki is often talked about as the most feminist of Japanese directors, and yet, and yet, and yet, um, there has never been a Studio Ghibli female um, director, and it doesn't look like it's on the cards at the moment either. Um, but what's and that's fascinating to me, particularly as they have, you know, pushed people from within the company up the ranks over the years. But they they have never, never seemed to have successfully done that with women. There are no, as far as I can tell, no female directors of even the commercials. So no. there's interesting things happening with women at Studio Ghibli, despite the fact that Miyazaki is seen to be very good at creating female characters. Um, so I, I think there's, there's lots of stories there that I'm hoping won't make anime fans hate me or hate the book, but I think it's, it's time to, to not just focus on the beautiful aesthetics and the wonderful themes that are in these movies, which are incredible films and incredible achievements in animation, but it's time to look behind the curtain a little bit for me and to think about how the studio has achieved the heights of fame internationally that it has achieved. And so that's again what I'm trying to do here in the new book.
2: Well, you certainly um, started that project sort of in a, a broader sense with Anime, a critical introduction. Certainly, yeah. Uh, which is a, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating and an enjoyable read, um, but also, as we say in Japanese, uh, no, <laughs> Thank I, you. I really learned a lot from, from this book. Um, And so I hope, uh, I look forward to learning even more, but specifically about Studio Ghibli from the forthcoming book. Um, I I hope uh, everyone
1: enjoys it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we will. Um, But uh, thank you very much, and I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening, and thank you, Amanda, for having me on today.